Namaskar. Good evening. Good morning, wherever you are. My name is Maya Ram. I first want to thank Sangam Talks for inviting me to give a speech on their platform, as I'm truly humbled that anyone wants to hear my story or anything I have to say. Um, you know, when Sangam Talks first approached me, they wanted me to speak to young Indian Christians that are close to my age, hence the title of my talk, Letters to a Young Indian Christian. I sure hope there are some young Indian Christians who are listening in or will watch this later on YouTube. But I also hope this is educational for everybody, no matter what their background. <clears throat> for everyone who's listening in, as well as those that will watch this later on YouTube. This is my talk, Letters to a Young Indian Christian. It's okay to question. Let me start with a brief background about myself. I was born in America to two Indian immigrants. My father is a Hindu, my mother is a Christian. However, in my house, in my family, only Christianity was given preference, and eventually I was forced to formally become one. I have a, one brother. He too was also forced at a young age. At the age of 16, I was forced into getting baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, which has some beliefs that are different from other den Christian denominations, but it's otherwise 98% the same. I'm just saying this up front because a lot of Christians like to dismiss Seventh-day Adventists as not Christian, much like they do with adherents from other Christian denominations, such as the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. <clears throat> it's their way of delegitimizing the struggle of ex-Christians who were part of these less mainstream denominations, saying that they were never Christian to begin with. Now, some of you may have seen my six-part, as I call it, extimony on Medium. You might have also seen my interview on the Mission Kali YouTube channel. And, or you may have seen my three-part interview with one Mary Suresh Ayer, who has also given a talk on Sangam Talks YouTube channel. I've also made short videos about the Bible for the Mission Kali YouTube channel, as well as written articles on the same for Mission Kali's website. My life has been greatly affected by Christianity for the last 30 years, completely against my will. It has affected me in a way that has left deep psychological and even spiritual impacts. I live with the consequences of decisions not made my, by me. And that is part of what my speech will consist of today. A lot of it is my journey, but it's also to ask questions that many Indian Christians, or any Christian really, might have asked themselves at one point or another, or asked themselves currently. That is all my intention is. I have no intention of spewing hate, like some of my detractors say I do. If I do come across as sharp or bitter towards Christianity, it's because you have to understand, my life was shaped by Christianity in a negative way. I live with the trauma I created in my life, as well as the trauma of falling away from this system of belief. I just ask that any Christians that may be listening or will watch this later on YouTube to have an open mind and to allow themselves to revisit those questions I have grappled with, and perhaps they have too, or currently do. I also ask that they cast aside this Orwellian definition of hate, which holds that any criticism of Christianity is considered hate or hateful. Now, one question I've had from my family is, how did we become Christian? Surely a lot of Indian Christians must have had this question. My mother is a Christian, as I said earlier. When I asked this question as to how her family became Christian, she said, after some hesitation, her nana, 
and his family converted in order for his father to get a better position in the British civil service. More than likely, they were converted by British missionaries, though it could have very well been American missionaries. They were allowed to run rampant doing conversions during British rule. My Parnana's family became Methodist. I later found out from other relatives that he came from a Patan Muslim background, with the family originally being from Delhi. Ironically enough, they were most likely Hindu before converting to Islam. I don't think they came directly from Afghanistan to Delhi, though I've yet to take a genetic test to prove this hypothesis. I also found out they were Zamindars, and so was my Parnani's family. They were also Zamindars, originally from, from Allahabad, now Prayagraj. But they were Hindu. My mother was raised a Methodist, even though, oddly enough, my Nana, her father, was a Hindu until only towards the end of his life. She became a Seventh-day Adventist as an adult. I ask any Christian that has asked this question to think of the reaction your parents or grandparents or uncles and aunties might have had. Were they puzzled as to why you would ask this question? Were they happy to tell you why they or their grandparents or their parents became Christian? Did they seem evasive? Or did they demonstrate avoidance when asking this question? Often it is said that people who are poor and are lower caste convert to get out of deep poverty and or the caste system. And that is not always true. My family consisted of zamindars, landowners. There are other allurements to get people to convert. I'm sure many of you listening have heard this general notion that people convert to Christianity for some sort of material gain, and, and turns out in many cases, they're not wrong. I'm also sure you've heard the phrase rice bag Christian. Just so you know, I don't like that phrase, and I think it's unfair to anyone who converted, no matter how long ago that was. What you should know, it was that the British themselves came up with this phrase, they coined it, in response to the large number of converts that they would see filling up pews in many churches during British rule. I think it's unfair, however, for different reasons. It doesn't account for the powerless position that many people found themselves in and still find themselves in. Whether it's the literal need for a rice bag, the need to be in a comfortable position in an oppressive system such as British rule, or even Portuguese rule of Goa, for example, in which the Portuguese carried out an inquisition and tortured Hindus into becoming Christian. Other enticements for conversion include education, medical care, or pressure from someone who offered a helping hand or a shoulder to cry on. In this case, I'm talking about Christians who come to families in distress and then use that opportunity to pressure them into converting. Now, many people could have very well converted because they truly love Jesus. Jesus is this mythical figure who told people to care for the least of us, the poor, the sick, the widows, children. Now, I use this word mythical because as I've progressed on my journey, I've learned that what I knew about Jesus can no longer be taken as fact. I've learned through the works of authors like Bart Ehrman, this three of his books listed on this slide, that Jesus may not have said those words that are attributed to him in the gospel. Many of the verses in the gospels are interpolation, meaning that they were inserted well after they were written. I wrote an article about that for Mission Kali and did a video covering the same. I also learned about the existence of other Gospels. Why were they not included in official canon? Now, 
this next slide on the left here shows an artist's depiction of the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 CE. This is where most of the books that make up the Bible were decided on, at least for the first iteration of the Bible. Now the Bible has been added to over the centuries. <clears throat> and you should know that there are differences between the Bibles of different denominations to this very day. I also learned about the differences between gospels of how events in Jesus's life were portrayed, such as, for example, his death. I have a little infographic on the right. <clears throat> One gospel has him crying out to this God, Yahweh, who is said to be Jesus's father. If you look at middle one, Matthew, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <clears throat> Another gospel, Luke, portrays his death in a very, very calm way where he says, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. This was to match the Greco-Roman ethos at the time, which was uh, influenced by Stoicism. It is portrayed the same way as the, Greek death, the death of Greek philosopher Socrates is portrayed. There are also scholars that make a claim that this Jesus figure might not have existed, that he might not be a real historical figure. I, I still believe, as do many other scholars, believe that Jesus was a historical figure. He was just some random Jewish apocalyptic preacher of the time. And <clears throat> many Jews at the time decided to follow this random Jewish apocalyptic preacher because they thought he was the Messiah. And therefore, they formed this, they formed this breakaway sect of Judaism after his death. I certainly no longer believe this random Jewish preacher has any divinity, though. But for some Christians, this love and admiration of this Jesus figure could very well have been the reason for their conversion. I say to Christians, only you can judge how your family reacts when you ask the question, how did we become Christian? If they are not sure of how they became Christian or are evasive about it, you might find that it raises more questions than what you first asked. I remember feeling that even as a Christian, that conversion under duress was not a genuine conversion. My mother was probably not one of those people. She was in a very bad state of mind and was searching for a path to follow that claimed to be the one true version of Christianity. Her previous denomination was not good enough. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination offered this for her, and soon after she started attending church services at Seventh-day Adventist Church, she then started making my brother and I go. And shortly after all three of us started regularly attending, my brother and I were forced to get baptized. She never tried to make my father go to church. He wouldn't do it anyway. I've told the story before of how the pastor came to visit my brother and I to ask if we were ready to do this and to also talk to our father, who he knew was not a Christian, if he was okay with this. My father said no, of course, and that, and he said the to the, he told the pastor, my, with, my children will only say yes to this because of their mother. Their mother is pressuring them to do so. That didn't stop the pastor from baptizing us. Now, her conversion may have been genuine, but like many Christians who converted from Hinduism and to a lesser extent Islam in India, my brother and I were in a powerless position and became Christians under duress. Many Christians recall feeling resentful of being forced to go to church when they wanted to be with their friends 
or they needed to study for exams, which just finished up a little while back. And now I know results are coming out. And, you know, it was the same for me. I had lots of exams. I had a lot of schoolwork to do. Except to add to that, I also felt the, resist, the resentment deep down in the recesses of my mind of this feeling of powerlessness into being forced into a religion that try as I might never felt right. I could never fully acknowledge this resentment until much later. That's not to say I didn't do my utmost to become a good Christian. For one, I kept the Sabbath day, which for Seventh-day Adventists is Saturday rather than Sunday, as it is for most Christians. I kept the Sabbath at great cost to me. I had lots of homework to complete by Sunday. And I also, I also found myself founding, falling behind by the time Monday came around when school began again. I was also not allowed to have any friends come over to my house, or, nor was I allowed to visit their house. In fact, actually, to be honest, I was not allowed to have any friends, especially if they were not Seventh-day Adventists. Even other Christians were not good enough. For a period, fiction books were banned in the house. Yes, that's how far my mother went, and many Christians do this in an attempt to get rid of all ungodly influences in the home. All I had at my disposal for a long time was the Bible. I read the Bible front to back, and that just raised more questions just on the text alone. And that brings up another question that many Christians, I'm sure, must have asked themselves at one point or another. Does the Bible make any sense? Reading the Bible just made me question more and more and brought no understanding about anything. In the first book of the Bible, for example, it's called Genesis. There is the creation story. <clears throat> that the earth was created in six days and that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. Now, as someone who was very interested in science and was strongly considering medicine, I had difficulty reconciling the biblical creation story with the science behind how Homo sapiens, aka human beings, came to be. <clears throat> I think this quote from Richard Dawkins illustrates the ridiculousness of the creation story and how we are supposed to have descended from two human beings, Adam and Eve. <laughs> As, and, you know, there was also the age of the earth, which has been approximated to be 4.5 billion years old. Now you contrast that with the biblical claim that the earth is 6,000 years old. When Christians ask how they got this age of the earth, they will point to a verse in Psalm chapter 90, which says, with a thousand years is is a day in the eyes of the Lord. Hence, six days equals 6,000 years. I asked the pastor what I should believe in light of what science has found <clears throat> and what I should trust. I was told to trust the Bible and the Bible only, and I heard the phrase, lean not into your own standing, which comes from the verse I've uh, got displayed here, from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Now, I ask this of Christians. Has your pastor told you the same thing when you had questions such as the one I had? Now, another example of a question that came up as I was reading the Bible comes from this random number that's given in Revelation chapter 7. 144,000 men that will enter heaven. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination, I should tell you, is one denomination that claims to have studied prophecy more closely than other Christian denominations. If you do not know what the word means, prophecy consists of divine revelation reve revealed by the God above, Yahweh, to 
men, one man or multiple men at the same time. <clears throat> they, the Seventh-day Adventists will often hold video seminars where they will try and gain followers, even from other Christian denominations, and they will advertise prophecy studies. They will say, learn about why all these things are happening in the world today. It's all in the Bible. And I bet they're doing this now, even during coronavirus and the, and the fallout from the pandemic. The prophecies they purport to study come from the books of Daniel and Revelation. Their interpretation of the scripture conveniently supports their worldview, that the Catholic Church will take over the world and implement a new world order. And they will force everyone to worship on Sunday and Sunday only. I took it as seriously as I could, even when questions came up as I read Revelation. The first eight verses in Revelation chapter 7 talk about 144,000 men that, will, with, that come from all the 12 tribes of Israel and that they will enter heaven only. Now, what about everybody else? I asked my pastor this, and he said, this is meant to be a metaphor. Yet before, the same pastor had said to take the Bible at its word when it came to the age of the earth. Now, to my knowledge, only the Jehovah's Witnesses believe only literally 144,000 men will enter heaven. All other Christians simply brush this under the rug. By the way, I also did a video for Mission Valley's YouTube channel on this topic, and I also wrote an article on the same, published not just on the Mission Valley website, but also on Creately in Medium. Now, there are other examples of stories in the Bible that just seem vile or illogical, ridiculous. Like, for example, there's a story in the Bible of this God, Yahweh, the Christian God, commanding the tribes of Israel to kill every one of rival tribes except virgin girls so they can have the virgin girls have their way with them. There's also the story of the birth of Jesus, how Jesus was impregnated, with, was conceived in his mother's womb without the act of intercourse. There's even a wild story, believe it or not, about how a prophet of this God, Yahweh, named Elisha, called on Yahweh to take revenge on a group of children who poked fun at him for being bald. So Yahweh sent a bear to maul them to death. Now, <laughs> British writer Oscar Wilde once said, when I think of all the harm the Bible has done, I despair of ever writing anything to equal it. If taken as a piece of literature, it's just a gory novel, worse than any of the most violent pulp fiction books you've ever read. If taken as a historical record, it's rather a jumbled mess, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Since leaving Christianity, I have learned, everything I have learned about the mythology that came to be Christianity has confirmed I made the right decision to leave. Yes, that's right. I quit Christianity. I wonder if Christians have asked this question. Can people quit Christianity? When I first heard, there is a group that identifies as ex-Christian. I was shocked. I had known there were groups like ex-Mormon and ex-Jehovah's Witness. But I did not know that many people could choose to identify as ex-Christian, meaning they left the entire religion behind. The doubts about this religion started as soon as I was baptized. But even so, it took me a long time to comfortably admit to myself, I'm an ex-Christian. Now, if you can recall, I was baptized into Christianity, not by my choice. 
even though I decided to do my best to be a good Christian, I still couldn't shake the doubts and questions that came up as I got deeper into it. When I found my pastor could not answer my question satisfactorily, I turned to Christian figures outside the church. The worst thing any pastor can do is tell an intelligent person to trust the Bible and lean not into their own understanding, which just demonstrates a lack of intellectual curiosity. And anyone with a spark of intelligence or curiosity will be put off by that line. So I turned to important speakers, Christian speakers. This woman on the right, her name is Joyce Meyer. And I found her arguments to be uh, wanting. You should know that Joyce Meyer is one of these fraud preachers that makes a lot of money at other Christians' expense. She's built multiple mansions and she flies private jets. And much of her money comes from the people that she fleeces. This man on the left, his name is Joel Osteen. He's another fraudulent preacher. <clears throat> you know, my nanny, my mother's mother, she, she would often listen to her talks on TV broadcast in India, and she would often buy her books, much to my own mother's chagrin. Many Christians, in fact, know of people like Joel Olstein and Joyce Meyer all about, and they, they don't like them as much as anyone else. <clears throat> so I turned to Christian intellectuals instead, such as this man that I'm going to show. His name is Ravi Zacharias. Now, for those of you who don't know, this man was one of the most popular Christian apologists, if not the most popular Christian apologist. Many Christians loved and adored him. I turned to him in an attempt to understand Christianity in an intellectual way. And plus, I sort of related to him because he's also of an Indian background. The premise, <clears throat> you know, the premise of talks of people like I mentioned, like Joyce Meyer, were that if you don't accept the Holy Spirit to transform you and just blindly believe, then of course you're not going to believe. Now give me money. Now with her and other Christian figures, I just found them to be disingenuous and fake, but not Rabbi Zacharias. Others seemed like hucksters who wanted to just, who were just interested in making money. I never got that impression from Rabbi Zacharias. He portrayed himself as a respectable Christian intellectual who was not interested in grifting or swindling people. How naive I was, I realized, in light of recent news that has come out about him. You know, when I look back on his various lectures and podcasts I listened to, I recall him bringing in the names of people like Malcolm Mugridge, C.S. Lewis, and G.K. Chesterton. These were all Englishmen, considered to be Christian intellectual heavyweights. I also recall him talking about Buddhism and Hinduism, saying that they are both exclusive religions and that it is near impossible to obtain moksha, that the only way we can transcend our sinful nature is to accept that we are fallen and that we need a savior, and to not rely on self-realization to transcend our bad sinful nature. So he would basically say the same things my pastors and other pastors would say in their sermons on every Sabbath day. He just dressed it up in intellectual gish gallop, and he was quite charming about it. You know, one Christian author named Lee Strobel once said that after attending a Ravi Zacharias lecture, that, you know, Ravi Zacharias sounded good, but that Lee, with the author, Lee Strobel, could not remember any specific point that Zacharias made during the lecture. In other words, it didn't matter if the soundness of his arguments, which they weren't, all he had to do was play the part and just sound good, which he did, I later found out. I found out later that he 
he said he claimed to have earned degrees at Oxford and Cambridge, and that was not true. And there are so many other things that have come out since he died earlier this year. If you follow Esther Dunraj on social media and YouTube, she just did an interview with someone who has fully exposed what a charlatan this Rabbi Zacharias fellow was. And it's just unfortunate that it's only come out after he died earlier this year. Eventually, the events in my life, as well as my growing disillusionment with Christianity, led me to drift away from it. I have told my story fully on other platforms of how my parents divorced eventually, two years after my brother and I were forcibly baptized, how I was pushed into nursing instead of medicine so that I could come out of school in less time and start to support my mother who had no income of her own, how I was coerced into stealing money from my father because my mother thought nothing of stealing from a heathen, which is the Christian equivalent of the word kafir, which I think more of you are familiar with and how I was forced to reconcile with the fact that as a nurse, I would have to work on every Sabbath and that I shouldn't have to go to hell making patients better on the Sabbath. And that if I were to go to hell, this God that would send me there is not a God worthy of being worshiped. And that's why I eventually quit Christianity. It was not a frivolous decision, especially since I was essentially raised with it from birth until close to age 30. It was all I knew. Even though my father is a Hindu, I, never full allowed, I was never allowed any exposure to the Hindu side of the family. Now, disclosure, I, just, I dislike using the term Hindu or Hinduism. The correct term is Sanatana Dharma, but for shorthand, I guess I don't have much of a choice but to use the word Hindu or Hinduism. For a time, I identified as an atheist. I couldn't even bring myself to look at Hinduism. I had a poor impression of it. I just thought it was a set of empty rituals blighted by an oppressive caste system. That's what years of no exposure to the positive side of Hinduism can lead to. I'm sure you see that with many even born Hindu children who remain Hindu, but are deracinated to the core, that they believe this silly notion. When I was young, my Nainama, my father's mother, they're from Andhra Pradesh, they tried to, she tried to show my brother and I Hindu style of worship. We did puja in her altar, and we celebrated festivals such as Ganesh Chaturthi. But when my mother found out, she was livid. And we were never allowed anywhere near anything Hindu again. It's so funny to see how many Christians born and raised in India react towards anything Hindu. I've heard stories of my uncles and aunts visiting a mandir, and then them reporting how strange it felt when sitting around people as they sang bhajans or took prasad. Now, eating food offered to, all, to idols is a very big sin in Christianity, as is idol worship itself in general. <clears throat> my aunt, one of my aunts, described Kali as a scary figure and still holds on to this naive belief. In contrast, she would say, how, this, how Jesus sing like a friendly figure. <clears throat> and, you know, many Christians still hold this belief. I've seen more foreigners show more respect towards Hinduism and more curiosity about it. But Indian Christians born and raised in India have a worse attitude towards Hindus and Hinduism than even some evangelical American Christians in the U.S. And they are quite intolerant themselves. I've been exposed to that too. Another aunt told a story 
of how she and my mother were taken as children to the Birla temple in Kanpur, and how my mother touched the foot of the Ganesh Murti. My aunt's mother reprimanded my mother for doing that, saying that we are Christian, we don't worship idols. And my mother innocently said, at least according to this story. Now, this tells me she must have been exposed to Hindu worship at some point because of my nana, her father. <clears throat> but somehow I think uh, my nani and her family nipped it in the bud early, as fast as they could. <clears throat> My, from what I can see, many Indian Christians are raised like they live in the belly of the beast, in a demonic society, meaning evil. Anything that is not Christian is evil. That's what many Christians think like. This fear of anything Hindu could also lead to them believing that Hindus hate them. From a young age, Christians are raised to believe that the world hates them because they hate the righteousness of Jesus. There are many verses such as John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you of, out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So many viable verses like this prime Christians into developing a persecution complex. They follow such an exclusive religion that they cannot fathom the notion of in Hinduism of Sarvadharma Samabhava. Or worse still, some Christians, pastors, and missionaries take advantage of the openness of Hinduism to convert by hook or by crook, even appropriating Hindu rituals, Hindu customs, and symbols. Now, if you follow Mission Kali online, you might see examples of appropriation of dharmic intellectual property, such as symbols, customs, agamas, etc. Okay, but I'm slightly digressing here. I ask this of Christians, what is your attitude? What is your attitude towards Hindus and Hinduism? If you are antagonistic towards Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs or even atheists, of course you can get antagonistic attitudes thrown right back at you. Otherwise, no one will care to hate Christians or Christianity. They just won't pay attention to it. Now, the key is mutual respect, and I, that's just something I don't see a lot of Christians displaying when I interact with them. Now, with this attitude towards Hinduism passed down to me by my mother, as well as living in America in general, it took me a while after leaving Christianity for good to even think about Hinduism. One day, when I was visiting my father, however, I picked up a book on, this, on his bookshelf. It was a biography of this man, Swami Vivekananda. It was by the French author named Romain Rolland. Reading this book, I was inspired by a man who had set sail to America in 1893 to a, to a country that did not accept anything that was not Protestant. They barely, they barely accepted Catholicism or Judaism, and they certainly didn't accept any other non Christian, non-Abrahamic religions. There were large numbers of immigrants that came to the U.S. from Ireland, Italy, and Eastern Europe, mainly Catholic and Jewish, and they were discriminated against by the larger society for a long time. There were also large number of immigrants back in the day that came from East Asia and South Asia, and they, were, they got it even worse because they did not follow any Abrahamic religion. So that's the climate that Swami Vivekananda was setting foot, setting foot in. <clears throat> Romain Valland said of Swami Vivekananda, his preeminent characteristic is kingliness. 
He was a born king and nobody ever came near him either in India or America without paying homage to his majesty. To me, I guess this was the mental permission I needed to give myself to explore Hinduism. And that is what I have chosen to embrace. If one person could come into that hostile climate back in 1893 and bravely proclaim, this is what I believe, then I could also do the same. I am still recovering from my upbringing and still continue on this journey. I read the Bhagavad Gita, I have taken up a meditation practice, and it certainly helps. As for what I believe, I have found Neti Neti to be very helpful. Now, many of you listening know this is the process of negation, not this, not this. Now, I ask this question all the time. Could I be taking the wrong path? Many Christians often write to me saying so, that I am taking the wrong path, and that they pray I come back to Jesus. Now, and and they also pray that I have a Damascus moment. That refers to the story of Paul, one of the the so-called apostles of Jesus, who became an apostle after Jesus died. He was a Jew named Saul who was... Who was, who was said to be persecuting those Jews that decided to follow this offshoot of Judaism that proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. One day, as he was heading to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in spirit and blinded him, saying, why are you persecuting me? So in other words, many Christians that write to me say that I am persecuting Christians by exposing Christianity, exposing its true spirit. And so they want me to come back that way. Well, that's not going to happen. With Neti Neti, I can say without a doubt that truth is not this, not this, meaning not Christianity. As I talked about earlier, I have learned that much of what I took as fact should not be taken for granted in light of new knowledge. Knowledge of the books of the Bible, especially the New Testament, being altered greatly. Of interpolations with words and phrases added later. If those words and phrases were added, what else has been? What I know now is that I am free to pursue the higher aims of Sanatana Dharma on my own time without worrying about whether I'm making a terrible mistake and whether I will be sent to hell to be tortured forever by this God, Yahweh. We are human. Let's face it. We are human and we fail often. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have an irreparable, sinful nature that we need to beg and plead to this God, Yahweh, to save, to save us from terrible punishment that he will meet out. That we, need, we don't need to necessarily accept a savior named Jesus or any savior. I've been given more grace in my life, grace that I can't say I've had before as a Christian. As Swami Vivekananda said, Vedanta, the Vedanta recognizes no sin. It only recognizes error. And the greatest error, says the Vedanta, is to say that you are weak, that you are a sinner, a miserable creature, and that you have no power, and you cannot do this, and you cannot do that. I leave this as parting words for Indian Christians. It's okay to question, and just as okay to follow your questions through if it comes to that. What you decide to do afterwards is up to you. You are in control of a lot more than you think. Thank you. Dhaniyavad. The basis of Hinduism, as you have explained and as Swami Vivekananda has explained, Aham Brahmasmi, we are all powerful, we are full of potential, 
the only these potentials are covered by our uh, weaknesses or dogmas which we self-impose. Intrinsically, we are very powerful and we can rise to any occasion, we can face any situation and we can face the world with conviction and uh, with uh, intellectual uh, superiority. So uh, that's very convincing and uh, we are very impressed that you have questioned Christianity logically. Thank you very much. So uh, I have certain interrelated questions. One is that uh, you you feel that uh, taking the Bible literally as the Seventh-day Adventists do. Many do. Uh, many uh, Christians many, do. Many Christians do. You know, it's not a, uh, it doesn't lead you anywhere. Uh, but there would be Christians, you know, Christian apologists especially, who would say that, you know, there are so many metaphorical passages and they contain deep philosophical meanings and so on and so forth. So how do you deal with that? That is one question. The other question is in your family, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, the Hindu element has been very dominant, even in an allegedly patriarchal society like ours. Uh, can you shed some light on how this dynamic works out? Uh, is this uh, the, the norm or it just happened in your family? I mean, uh, do you have any information on that? Thank you. Okay. The first question, how to deal with Christian apologists. First, you must understand they often do not make honest arguments, either because of their own ignorance or because they are knowingly deceiving people into you know, being okay with what they read in the Bible. Because if people were to just read the Bible by itself, they would find many things wrong. <clears throat> and then any Christians might end up conflicted be and because their pastors will tell them it's to be taken as is and understood as is without all these explanations by apologists that try to obfuscate uh, the meanings that with the meanings of, of certain passages, passages with the meanings which many uh, readers will come to by themselves. They'll come to their own conclusions if they were to just read the Bible as is. So just keep that in mind. They are just, dis, just uh, dishonest actors most of the time. And it also, I should mention that Christian apologetics seems to be more for Christians themselves, to, for them to intellectualize the, with the, the Bible, to make it more palatable just for themselves. Many others who are discerning will see right through arguments that Christian apologists make. Men, with Rabbi Zacharias was the most slick apologist I can think of, and he commanded a lot of respect, so much so that when he died, major papers like the New York Times, Washington Post were publishing, were, were publishing uh, obituaries about him. However, I don't think any other Christian apologist is as slick as him to command that much respect. Now, your second question, I... Uh, you must be wondering why uh, the women in my mother's family had the most influence and that this goes against the patriarchal, I guess this kind of goes against the patriarchal society that we're used to seeing that's more inherent in, in Christianity as well as Islam. And, you know, that's a good question. All I can say is in spite of, you know, they, they were the, the women of my family from my nani onwards, they they're born into Christianity. What did they know? But it's their own tenacity, their own 
personal characteristics and their own hard work that they got to a good place in, in their own lives in, in the society. Most of my mother's family consists of teachers. My nanny was a teacher. My great aunts, her sisters, were teachers in their lifetime. And many of my mother's cousins and my, my Masi, they were teachers too. It's their own hard work. It is their own intellect that had, that they, that they got to where they were. My nani, I can tell you, uh, she lost her father, my barnana, at a very young age. So as the oldest sister, she had to step up and be, I guess, the, I guess to be the sort of the head of the family. She had an older brother who also died at a young age. So in that sense, in that, in that sense, they had to go against the patriarchal makeup of Indian society. Does that answer your question? Uh, but uh, I mean, how much is this generalizable? Because we often find, I mean, it's generally thought that whenever a uh, uh, non-Christian marries a Christian, it is the non-Christian who converts, regardless of whether you are in a patriarchal society, matriarchal society. It is the non-Christian. I mean, is this a trend? Have any studies been done on this? This is the other part. How general is this? Um, there, I don't know if there's been any formal studies carried out, but yes, there is pressure for the non-Christian spouse to convert um, because in the Abrahamic religions, you, <clears throat> you're not allowed to have interfaith marriage. In Christianity, there's this concept of being unequally yoked, meaning that if a Christian marries a non-Christian, they have more of a burden to make sure that they, with that their spouse is living a righteous Christian life, or that their children will be raised as Christian, living a righteous Christian life. So I can only offer anecdotes, but yes, there is the pressure from the non-Christian to convert. My nana was a Hindu only until the, uh, and it was only uh, towards the end of his life that he converted to Christianity, so he held out. But my father, he, he, he never converted at all. He's probably the exception, to be honest. Uh, my name is Krishna. Uh, my question is regarding, you know, the concept of poison pill. Uh, I don't know whether it is coined by Mr. Rajiv Mahatma or has it borrowed him it from somebody. But the concept of poison pill, which says that you know this, uh, there are certain uh, beliefs, you know, in Christianity as well as in Islam, which makes uh, most of the Christians and Muslims, you know. Uh, not conducive to convert to other religion or maybe to renounce their own religion. So this is one thing which I wanted to throw light upon. And the second thing is that uh, uh, Islam, about Islam, it has been said it is a political ideology to dominate the world. How much it is true about the Christianity also? Because as much as I can see, you know, in the modern time, when we have everything available online, and you know, there are so many contradictions in Bible and Quran, and you know, I keep on reading about. So most of these violent verses about kafirs and you know non-Muslims. So, and given that Christianity uh, or the Western world, you know, fashions itself as being the harbinger of technology and you know the knowledge. So, how do how do you uh, explain this contradiction that despite being, you know, the harbinger of these technologies and you know revolution, science and technology, how can the whole Western world is still following the Christianity? And the first question, as I told you. Uh, would you like to talk about this poison pill concept? Thank you. Well, um, I have heard the poison pill concept by uh, Rajiv Malhotra ji. 
I've, I've read a lot of his books. It also helped me to deconvert. And um, if I can recall, the poison pill concept is uh, that in order to foster mutual respect, that uh, certain with that uh, <clears throat> there are certain beliefs that other people of other religions have to accept are part of Hinduism and they have to respect that. I think he all gave one example of uh, the belief of reincarnation, how that can be a poison pill. That, that's what I've read before. Um, another thing I think could be a poison pill is just uh, is um, just this notion that are we really that sinful, that are that depraved that we need Allah or Jesus to save us from our own selves? I think the notion of you know have being in war and control of what we think is empowering in and of itself, and that can act as a poison pill. The second one is um, about if Christianity can be considered an ideology like Islam is. You know, if followed to the letter, yes, it, it can be. It is it, it it's a way of life that it's a oppressive cult like system, all of it. You are you're told who to worship, only one God. You are told you you have to go to church on one day. For most Christians it's Sunday, but for me it was Saturday as a seventh day Adventist. You have to give ten percent of your income. Islam, I know there's a similar concept of zakat. All Muslims have to give a certain percentage of their income for charity purposes. You cannot marry non-Christians unless it's to convert them. But even that is not allowed. They're just not, they're discouraged severely from marrying non-Christians. Period. Because of the whole unequally yoked thing. And they are often, Christians are often encouraged to be what's called not of this world. Meaning they're not supposed to associate with anyone who is not Christian. <clears throat> so in that sense, it is an all-encompassing ideology that dictates how they should act in the world. And I believe that Christianity and you know, secular ideals such as democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, they are not compatible. And if you ask why Christian nations are so successful, let me tell you. It was the Enlightenment. It was the Enlightenment that made them successful, where they decoupled their secular with, with they decoupled from Christianity, reduced the power of the church in Europe and to some extent in America. <clears throat> and otherwise, they would be just as much of a mess as you know some of these countries of the Middle East or you know Pakistan and other Islamic majority countries. They would be just as much of a mess if they didn't separate church from state, if they didn't embrace the Enlightenment. <clears throat> in fact, in America, a lot of people are leaving their churches. They're not going to churches anymore, and they're choosing not to, to identify as non-religious. And churches know this. That's why they aggressively convert, in, not just in India, but all over Asia and all over Africa, in an attempt to fill up their membership rosters. If not, if not globally, I think eventually I think they'll start to bring in more Christ, uh, Christian converts to their churches from abroad, have them sponsor them for immigration purposes to literally fill up their empty pews in the United States. Okay, uh, it's a very small question. Um, lot is a lot is being said about uh, caste system in Hinduism, but I have also heard that there is a 
uh, I mean, I mean, there are different sections in Christianity also, like Catholic, Protestant, and all. And how is the relation between them? Uh, that is what my question is. You know, normally they'd really not have anything to do with each other. Catholics don't have much to do with Protestants. Protestant denominations do not have anything to do with each other. <clears throat> all of this, all this, all this started with what the Catholics called the Great Schism, that started in the 16th century when Martin Luther of Germany formed, would broke away from the church. And since he broke away, many Protestant denominations have broken away from each other over the years, often with lots of bloodshed and lots of strife. So basically, they don't really have much to do with each other. And what I can see in India, they mostly do not have much to do with each other. My family seems to be somewhat of an exception there. My, my mother's family is mostly Methodist, but my mother became a Seventh-day Adventist. And one aunt of hers had to convert to Catholicism to marry, uh, but to marry her husband. And my uncles, she had three sons, were raised as Catholic. But that's an exception, to be honest. You can talk to many other Christian, ex-Christians, you know, ask if they had much to do with people from, say, CSI or Catholic Church or Martoma's Christian sect, so on and so forth. I have a question, Maya. Sure. Uh, I was raised in, again, a mixed background where some people did choose to. My grandfather turned to Christian science towards the end of his life. And I was raised in a convent. I studied in a convent and was pretty much influenced by the catechism classes, Roman Catholic uh, tradition. And then over the years, I explored many other traditions. One thing I find very attractive about Abrahamic religions is that, you know, it, uh, you're not asked to take any responsibility you're not asked to, you're you given you, 10 commandments or uh, do this, five, five namas or 10 commandments, go to church. Uh, there is one God. There's a sense of security in that, you know, when you're told what to do. Right. Anything you'd like to say about that? Yes, there is that security, it seems. It's, it, for outsiders, it seems the Sanatana Dharma is too complex. Um, it just it does come with uh, you know large psychological costs in my opinion. It comes with this you know lack of lack of freedom in the end. It also comes with the cost of you know trying to so strictly adhere to these with to with to what is demanded of you. So it may seem simple at first, and I know for many uh, Hindus their attraction to Christianity and is that they can eat anything. Islam has prohibitions on pork or anything that's not halal, but Christianity, uh, you can eat anything, including pork. However, <clears throat> they will off, however, they, what they don't realize is that much more will be demanded of them afterwards, like the tithing and with the pressure to isolate yourself from others and so on and so forth. It just comes at a, at a huge cost. And then also, not only that, a lot of lay Christians are pressured to be missionaries. So not everyone has to be with a missionary organization affiliated with them officially to be a missionary. They are pressured to do so in their own capacity, tell everybody they meet about Jesus, how, how Jesus will save and whatnot. And I would also say this, this pressure to be a missionary, to put yourself out there and say, 
Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the savior. This will not only act, but this actually act, uh, works to strengthen their affiliation with Christianity because inevitably, you know, when they're, when they're forced to go out, pressured to go out and publicly proclaim the word, they're, they will get pushed back. And that, you know, pushes them more into the arms of their church, their pastor, and their, and their Christian group that they are now, you know, affiliated with. The second kind of security which comes is that you belong. You belong to a community. Yes. One, there is, in Hinduism, there is karma. So you're responsible for your actions. There it is easy. You do this and you don't do this and you're saved. Uh, number two is the sense of belonging. In Hinduism, uh, five people in the family may have different gurus. Five different gurus, five different paths. Hmm. So again, the comfort of belonging to community. Yes, yes, agreed. Yeah. <clears throat> and that kind of openness is too jarring for many people to handle. And I'd like to comment on the, uh, you know, on the sense of belonging you get in Christianity. It's, it's very unfortunate that a lot of uh, pujaris and pandits are not really given a brief training in psychology in, you know, being able to better tend to um, their their shisha's needs that uh, you know everybody has their down moments everybody has their moments of distress families can be in crisis all the time yet there is no help offered no concrete help offered by gurus or pujaris or pandits and you know that if that can change i think that will keep more hindus within hinduism and not led away to some with to some cult that teaches a a not only false ideology, but totalitarian that does not allow them to get out that easily. I guess that is the attraction uh, for these uh, new age therapies, new age, you can call them cults, new age traditions, somebody's. I, I, yes. I think that is the, the belonging to a community part. It looks like he asked something in the chat. I am keen to understand the role of Pope in global political scenario and convent in local scenario. With uh, you know, I I was not a cath I was not a Catholic. In fact, I was raised to be suspicious of the Catholic Church, and it does seem like that with that is the most uh, coherent Christian group because the Pope is considered a global figurehead. Even more so than any of these, uh, you know, imams and malvis in Islam, they don't have quite the same amount of power that the Pope does. And the convent school, they're not obvious in their conversion agenda, but they, you know, there's, they're very subtle about it. They're very subtle, like in their, in in how they introduce people to Christian concepts, like in moral science. Now, I did not study at a Catholic school, but I did. When I, I lived in India, I studied at a, a quasi-Christian school. They weren't obvious about it, but it, during moral science, it became apparent that they were talking more, that they were trying to introduce Christianity. But I should say my mother went to a Catholic school and my father went to a Catholic school. So both have been influenced in that way by what they learned in, uh, those, in, that, in that sort of education system. Maya Ji, uh, as you have seen both the sides of the coin, uh, my question to you is that 
what is that which clicks best with the Christian youth? Fraud missionaries are converting lot of people, and I work in the field of bringing those people back to their native culture. So, when we talk with those converted Christians, especially youth, uh, what will impact them most and turn their inclination back to their roots uh, to Sanatan Dharma? Uh, can you please uh, give any ideas about that? I think showing first the positive side of, of Sanatan Dharma. Many of them must have been influenced by what they've learned at home of, or what they've learned in school that you know, in, anything Hindu is, is negative. And perhaps cast with, if they might have experienced some discrimination firsthand as a child, they might have been influenced by that to turn towards Christianity. I think showing positive side of Sanatana Dharma and showing that it's possible to remain a Hindu no matter what caste that they won't be discriminated against, they won't be treated with indignity. I think that will be the first approach to keeping people with, to, from uh, bringing youth back to Christianity. I mean, not to Christianity, but away from Christianity. And also just showing, we're just asking, you know, questions like, have they read the Bible? Does it make any sense to you? And <clears throat> why do they have, and asking, are they, and, you know, asking if their church is pressuring them to come to church, even when they have uh, very key, very important exams, which will determine the rest of, which the, determine the, the trajectory for the rest of their lives, influence whether they'll be going to get a professional training or, you know, any other higher studies that will impact them. <clears throat> I think, but overall, just presenting a positive, just presenting as a positive influence in their life will help them the most. <clears throat> 